this is an important item to my district and my council like my community. Place it on the agenda so we can debate it. We did. Thank you. And you broke the Brown Act. Thank no, you. I did not. So if we Thank you for your you accusation. Welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP, Long Beach Public Radio. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and I'm joined by Emma DiMaggio, the managing editor at the Signal Tribune, to round up some of the noteworthy items that went before the council in September. Howdy. So we just heard uh, Councilmember Rex Richardson admonishing Councilmember Stacey Mungo about a potential Brown Act violation last month. Um, we'll get to that later in the show, but first, uh, an erosion of first amendment rights or maintaining the peace. The council this month voted to draft an ordinance that would ban protesters from coming within 300 feet of a targeted residence. The controversial decision comes after some recent demonstrations related to tenant rights and police brutality paid visits to the homes of elected officials. Specifically, there was an instance last September where protesters advocating for police budget cuts left homemade coffins at Councilwoman Susie Price's home in Belmont Heights. The move by the Long Beach Council to restrict this kind of speech comes on the heels of a similar law being finalized in Los Angeles. To the fear of social justice and civil liberty advocates, the provision would allow an aggrieved party, meaning either the targeted resident or a neighbor, to sue violators for up to $1,000. Additionally, the law would make the act of simply planning a protest aimed at a home illegal. The National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles spoke out against this ordinance, writing in a letter that it was a ploy to shield elected officials from, quote, the inconvenience of hearing Angelino's voice their dissatisfaction at the ongoing failures of our political leadership, end quote. Long Beach council members said that they understood facing protests was part of the job when they signed up to be on the ballot but claimed the proposed law was more so to protect their neighbor's peace and quiet. Eighth District Council member Al Austin said, quote, overreaching and quote, hyper-aggressive tactics by some demonstrators led to him authoring the proposal. Home is supposed to be a safe space. Home is a sanctuary for families. And when that safe space is threatened, the quality of life is diminished. We fully acknowledge the right to protest and free, free speech. Citizens have a cherished right to the freedom of speech. However, our constitutional rights are not unlimited. This item is being brought forth in the interest of safety of all parties. Price, who co-signed the item, alleged that in one instance, a man with a shotgun stood outside her home in a threatening manner during a protest, adding that demonstrations pose a potential danger to children in residential locations. Let's listen. It's not us. It's it's the people around us who um, didn't really sign up for that. And um, and I think this ordinance, which was just passed by L.A., was done because we're in a time now where things have been stretched to a limit that could potentially be dangerous. And I think we're just trying to protect the community. The only dissenting council member was Roberto Uranga, who represents the 7th District. He said that during his 22 years in public office, 
He's had his fair share of picketers showing up at his home, yet still believes in the individual's right to protest. Uh, I think this ordinance, while it might be in the spirit of uh, protecting uh, the welfare of elected officials or, or the subjects of any kind of protest, I think that the people have a right to do so. And uh, we know that when we get into this, uh, this job, that that is a very much a possibility. Notably, San Jose passed a law creating a 300-foot buffer between homes and protesters in 1993. When anti-abortion picketers who were arrested after demonstrating outside the home of a doctor challenged the law, uh, it was upheld by a state's appeals court, uh, which cited the protection of private property. Uh, The California Supreme Court later declined to hear a further appeal. So how will this ordinance be enforced? That's still unclear, but before a potential ordinance comes before the council for a vote, the body is expected to receive a report outlining how the law would work and how it would be enforced. Um, And one thing to point out here is that there are already laws against the destruction of property, trespassing, and brandishing weapons. Uh, So what this potential ban really does is to prohibit the act of protesting Uh, near homes itself. So, look, I think there's uh, kind of a big obvious question that you are asking about this, uh, one that might seem rhetorical, but is still worth asking, which is how bad have conditions become for residents of a given city that council members are resorting to these types of laws? Um, Like, you shouldn't, shouldn't these same officials instead be asking why people are feeling so compelled to show up at their doorstep to express their grievances. Um, The point of these protests is to make those in power uncomfortable. And at least in Long Beach, these protect, these protesters aren't groaning about potholes. They're, they're, they're addressing life or death issues like evictions during a pandemic or trigger happy cops. Um, And, you know, none of the council members drew the contrast between what it means to endure a little disturbance in a bedroom community where everyone has doors and windows they can shut versus something like uh, being left to sleep on the street. So in other news, uh, Emma, there won't be a Dark Harbor Halloween experience this year at the Queen Mary. Have you ever been to that? No, I haven't. Well, you won't this year either because the ship <laughs> is super busted. Uh, as I'm sure most of y'all have heard already, uh, we're talking about at least $23 million in urgent repairs and as much as $175 million in total preservation costs after decades of mismanagement by both private companies and the city, which let's be honest, hasn't done the best job of vetting leaseholders. Urban Commons Queensway, the last operator of the retired ocean liner was forced to surrender the ship back to the city after filing for bankruptcy earlier this year. The council already approved about half a million dollars from the Tidelands funds to kickstart repairs and city staff have indicated that they expect to come back with another $5 million request soon. So it's easy to see how patching up this, uh, this treasured piece of history could very quickly become a money pit for taxpayers. Um, so what's the plan? Well, uh, last month, the council voted to begin negotiations to transfer control of the ship and the 40 acres of surrounding land known as Pier H to the Port of Long Beach. 
Um, although the port is technically a city department, it manages its own budget and is governed independently by members of the Harbor Commission who are appointed by the mayor. And so, you know, looking forward, there are various options to weigh um, regarding the fate of the queen. For instance, some have suggested simply dismantling it, but officials have estimated that the cost of that could be up to $190 million. So needless to say, there's no really, there's no really easy way out of this. Um, another option that's been floated has been to dry dock the ship, uh, which would preserve it for at least 100 years. But that's also pricey, uh, with cost estimates ranging from $200 million to up to half a billion dollars. Uh, because there's a lot of log logistics to hammer out uh, from timelines to funding to a reopening plan. It could be months, if not a year, until anything is really finalized. What are the advantages of the Harbor Department taking control of the Queen Mary? Uh, the main reason seemed to be that it opens up additional funding avenues since the port maintains its own budget and has a billion dollar capital projects fund. Uh, more cynically, some could say that for elected officials, it spreads out responsibility for managing this ship. So if this thing goes belly up in the future, uh, you know, the council could be shielded from some of the heat um, if the queen becomes a boondongle. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, Emma will be talking about playgrounds and the Brown Act violation that stopped the resolution in its tracks. Stay with us. Go to 
I'm Ken Flores, joined by Emma DiMaggio, and you're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP 99.1 FM. So Emma, like any other responsible adult, adult, I've I've definitely ended a few nights on the town swing on a swing set, doused in moonlight long after last call. Um, I think you are going to be the bearer of bad news here to tell me that those days may soon be over. It appears that adults in Long Beach are ascribing too much value to the adage, work hard, play hard. Long Beach's Parks, Recreation, and Marine Department has seen at least half a dozen instances of playgrounds being damaged by adult use. In one instance, playground repairs cost the city around $50,000. That's why at its September 7th meeting, the Long Beach City Council moved forward on an item to create kid zones at local parks. Under the proposal, adults would not be able to enter certain zones in parks, playgrounds, beaches, and other areas without accompanying a child under the age of 12. Here's Park Recreation and Marine Director Brent Dennis on the item. Yeah, certainly. Um, I can think of probably a half dozen of the instances. I know Councilwoman Price cited one of the more recent ones that was disappointing once the Wanapero uh, playground had been open, I think within a matter of several days. Uh, due to some uh, adult uh, misuse of the, the playground equipment that was obviously designed for children. Uh, that caused us to uh, secure the whole area, take it you know, out of uh, community enjoyment, uh, and then have some of the, the components re-engineered. I think that was um, probably, um, probably around $50,000, I'm guessing, for the re-engineering and fortifying of the, the supports. And then, as you, as you know, in um, CD7, we've had some unfortunate, uh, very significant losses of playgrounds. And again, from my perspective, um, I think, you know, with the best of intentions, we do want our playgrounds to be safe and welcoming for our young families and our kids to have healthy, creative play uh, areas. And I think, you know, the kids zone in particular um, would be a, a very wise move. Uh, but I, I do know it's going to take a lot of coordinated effort across interdepartmental teams uh, to make it effective. The move is meant to deter adults from using playground equipment that can't withstand their size and weight. Council members cited damage at their respective district's playgrounds, including a broken slide and a damaged zip line. The city might also consider increasing signage at the parks to explain weight limits and the intended age ranges for certain park equipment. Here are council members Cindy Allen and Susie Price giving their takes on kid zones. I heard from many of my residents and folks that are concerned about adults misusing public playgrounds and spaces. Um, recently, throughout the city, we've seen spaces designed for children vandalized and misused. Um, parks in my district, um, as Miracle on 4th and Promenade Square Park, are impacted by ongoing loitering issues which discourage park usage by children um, or their guardians. Given these trends, I think it's necessary that we look at ways to create safe spaces for our children at our parks. By establishing kid zones, we can ensure the city playground equipment and play areas specifically designed for children remain safe and remain available spaces for use by children. I think it's imperative that we have spaces that are designed for children and used by children. Uh, just recently uh, at our Wanapero playground uh, structure, we've had to do numerous repairs because it's such a great structure that adults have been also using it and trying to 
um, to be on the equipment and it's impacted the equipment and it's used by the children because of the damage that has resulted. Additionally, I think it's sometimes intimidating for children when they see adults in a play space um, and just the way that they're um, trained to be weary of adult strangers makes them not feel as comfortable in those spaces. And I think it's important that uh, we create areas where children feel safe to play and have equipment that's the appropriate size and designed for their ages. We put a lot of effort and care into designing age-appropriate play equipment in our parks and recreational areas. And, and so I think this item is a really good one to address some of those concerns. City staff are expected to report back on the item, including the cost of signage, installation, and enforcement at a future council meeting. So I'm I'm curious I'm curious about this. Who who's breaking this playground equipment? Is this just adults who maybe don't realize they're a little too heavy for this equipment, or are we talking about you know just plain old vandals coming around and you know destroying equipment out of malice? I'm not certain, though something like a broken zip line definitely seems like the result of good old fashioned fun. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed. Things like broken slides seem way more ambiguous because I'm not sure what kind of force it takes to break a slide. Um, either, either way, enforcement will definitely be a challenge if this ordinance comes to fruition. All right. Uh, what, what do you got next for us? Uh, the council delayed a discussion about state housing bills SB9 and SB10 in September after the city attorney notified the council that they participated in a potential Brown Act violation, which was deemed a procedural error. The Brown Act is meant to prevent local governments from avoiding public scrutiny by communicating with one another outside of their public sessions, in this case, council meetings. The law applies when a majority of members communicate with one another about a topic meant to be discussed in a public forum. The violation was triggered when Councilmember Al Austin's office communicated with too many other council offices about signing on to an SB9 and SB10 opposition item. The four offices he contacted, including himself, constituted a majority discussion by the council. City Attorney Charles Parkin advised the council not to discuss the item and table it for the next meeting. Here's Parkin on the violation. I have confirmed that these four emails were sent, and the alleged violation is that um, Council District 8 com communicated with the majority of the council members outside of the public meeting concerning this upcoming item on the agenda. It is my opinion that there is sufficient evidence to show a direct communication with the majority of the council members concerning an item within the jurisdiction of the council outside of a public meeting. And then, at in fact, the item that was attached to the emails requesting they sign is the item placed on the agenda this evening. I understand the position of Council District 8, that the communication was only seeking the members to sign on to the item. However, as I mentioned, the communication requested, uh, the letter was shared with the majority of the council, and the item um, is taking a position on a state legislation. It would be reasonable to assume that those members of the council agreeing to sign on to this letter, reviewed the council letter, and would be or are in support of the position, and therefore it appears a collective occurrence of the majority of the council was being sought in advance of the public meeting. So based upon my limited information here, it is my opinion that a Brown Act violation would occur if this item is considered debated or voted on this evening. Uh, further, my recommendation would be to withdraw or receive and file this item for a future meeting in order to cure this alleged uh, violation. 
The discussion had already lagged after the city's state legislation committee failed to take action on an SB9 and SB10 item during a previous meeting. By the time the item was brought to the council by Austin for the first time, both housing bills had already been passed by the state legislature. The bills were literally on the governor's desk for signature or veto by the time the council discussed the item at their next meeting. Um, the debate that followed the one-week delay was contentious and ended in a four-to-five vote against voicing opposition to the bills. Many of the council members who objected said that their opposition would be too little too late, given that the bill had already essentially been passed. Um, SB 9 and SB 10 are contentious in their own right. In brief, SB 9 allows single-family lots to be subdivided to allow for the development of duplexes, which some residents say will impact the character of their neighborhoods, in addition to adding parking impacts and some of the other consequences that come with increased density. Those who support the bill say that it creates much needed housing and may create opportunities for home ownership, given the fact that duplexes can be more affordable than single family homes. It should be noted though that the bill does not include any affordability requirements. SB 10, on the other hand, allows jurisdictions to opt in to upzone urban areas close to transit, allowing for up to 10 units per parcel without oversight by the California Environmental Quality Act, often referred to as CEQA. Here's Councilmember Al Austin on the bills. However, SB 9 and SB 10 applies a one-size-fits-all approach to the entire state without the benefit of community input and extensive work that we put in at the local level to address our housing crisis. The legislation requires a by-right approval of this new housing, circumventing the important local government review process that includes extensive public engagement without any requirements that the new housing developments be affordable housing. As we all know, it takes time for new housing to be built. We're seeing new housing opportunities, including affordable housing in many parts of our city today. We're seeing more ADUs built throughout the city, but at the same time, we've worked to preserve the integrity and distinct character of our many great neighborhoods in our city. This legislation is opposed by a broad coalition of hundreds of local governments, the League of California Cities, social justice advocates, affordable housing groups, neighborhood councils, and many others. So tonight, I'm asking my colleagues to join me in urging Governor Gavin Newsom to veto these bills and instead let our city continue to work to meet our housing needs with our local community input and policies and zoning that take into account our own local needs, the Long Beach Way. Councilmember Roberto Uranga, on the other hand, opposed the vote because it didn't follow the proper channels. He was referring to the fact that it didn't come from the committee level, and he also cited the delay on the item. Here's Uranga. Now, on these two items right now, I think that this uh, letter to the governor is uh, more symbolic than anything else. Uh, the governor is going to sign it. All the it's passed both legislate the legislature and and the, and the house. I mean, the assembly and, and the senate. So it passes legislature. It's a uh, it's a done deal. Now, there's other ways. I, I understand uh, from uh, my participation in other in other organizations committees that there is a. Um, Growing effort in the community to bring a uh, a uh, vote to the to the people of California. There's a, there's a petitions being circulated that will address both uh, SB nine and SB ten, 
uh, that'll be, of course, later on down the line. And I'll wait for that to see what, what the result of that is. But right now, I think uh, my vote for this would be a symbolic vote, and I don't do symbolic votes. It should be noted that council members regularly pass symbolic votes unanimously. The purpose of both bills is to spur on housing creation in a state that faces a long-standing housing crisis. Council members have long expressed their desire for local control over housing, which some say is undermined by SB9 and SB10. Here's Vice Mayor Rex Richardson on the bills. So the city's position, my own position, um, the city council has been very public about their position on local control. So that's that's not an issue here. I think I think there's also a reality that we should acknowledge that um, that Janet brought up. Uh, nice to meet you, Janet. Um, that Janet brought up is that single family housing in general in a number of cities. And I know this from our regional hat. Single family housing has been used as a, a means to block any growth from taking place. And the ultimate result of the, you know, the abuse of single family housing is that housing and the burden, uh, the burden of uh, density uh, gets pushed on cities like Long Beach because other cities have not done their part. And so in, in that, you know, from that standpoint, the state has attempted to take action to fix the issue of you squeeze down in one area, you push everybody out of one community, it pops up in the other and it exacerbates the homelessness crisis. And so from the state standpoint, I understand, I actually understand why five or six members of our local delegation voted to address this. And the state has taken action. You've got, you know, in the last week or so, the legislature approved the bill with 28 to six vote in the Senate, 45 to 19 in the assembly. Now I wish this hadn't been the case. But the reality is that's the case. This is an issue statewide. We've, you know, advocated for protections for us here in Long Beach. Many of those have been included. And that's the hard reality is that although we wish that hadn't happened, the state has taken that action. And so um, I think, you know, personally, um, with overwhelming support in the legislature, I think the things that are, you know, in the conversation I had with the governor's office, I think the reality is that this thing is going to get signed. This is the law. The state has taken action. This is about to happen. And in thinking about that, I think what's this this vote is going to have very little impact on the actual trajectory of the bill. Governor Gavin Newsom signed the bills into law on September 16th and the city remains neutral in its stance. So after this kerfuffle over the, the Brown Act, uh, has the council put in place any measures to prevent this type of thing from happening again? Yes. So at that second meeting, when they saw the item again, uh, the council actually passed a policy limiting the number of signers an item can have, which will inevitably lead to less contact between council members and less chance for a Brown Act violation in the future. All right. Well, that does it for our show this month, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, the council meets at 5 p.m. on the first three Tuesdays of the month. You can follow along with our live coverage of each meeting at LBC Meeting Notes on Twitter. And don't forget, when the council's off, we're on the air. That means you can catch our show on the last Friday and Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. on KLBP 99.1 FM. Uh, You can also listen to an archive of past episodes as well as this show on demand on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as always, special thanks to our wonderful engineer, Gabe Perales, uh, the whole KLBP crew, and my co-host, Emma DiMaggio. 
theme music by my colleague Esther Kang. My name is Kevin Flotis. Take care.